Hi, Joe. We're going to lose uh, the audio file this week. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think about that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe our audio file. Maybe it's like a vampire. It can't see its own reflection. <laughs> <laughs> our, our audio doesn't. Nice. Our conversations don't record on physical media. Oh, what do they record on? They're ethereal, kind there's, of like a vampire's apparition. There's a ghostly scrivener in the ghostly machine. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. It's just you and me this week. Yeah. How you doing? Where's Where's Sonia? <laughs> where yeah, Where is our? Why did she not show up again? <laughs> Once again, she's shirking, <laughs> and she has so many episodes. <laughs> Who knows where she is? We get we have a topic today, don't we? This is not like one of those shows where we just dig into the mailbag and just kind of you know shoot the stuff. That's true. No, we are going to dig into the mailbag because there is mail in we, the mailbag. We do However, have a little bit. We do have this other topic. Now we talked about this other topic. I think we talked about it when. In, when Tim was here for the first go round, although we weren't recording when we had that conversation, is that right? I feel <laughs> so, like we did talk about it a little. So this bit. is the truly vampiric conversation. Or maybe it we was. Had. Maybe it was. Uh, it wasn't the one with Sonya. I, you know what we should do? What a, a a segment of our show every week can be us trying to remember things that we did earlier. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> it makes That's, for great. Oh my great god! Radio. People are tuning in. I can just. <laughs> I can hear the applause out there in listener right. land. Yeah, people are are do, they're 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 pumping their fists in their cars as, as they're we, driving right now. As we get older, yes. As we get older, that the show will increasingly be that though, right? It'll be. Yeah. Did we talk about like what? When was that time? Oh, I think. And then it the was... segment right after that will always be talking about our new medications <laughs> or old medications on new doses. <laughs> Ooh, that's, interesting. That's going to take time right. to work through that. You know, joint problems, skin conditions, right. any any really uh, interesting <laughs> diagnostic tests we've learned about. An article by a mutual friend of ours, y'all, and a few also co-host. A few articles. So this is Dolly Lithwick and and Rick Hassan wrote a piece for Slate six and, days after she had written an earlier piece for Slate on the same subject. Yes, and Rick and Erwin Chemerinsky had a podcast episode about friend it. of the show, Erwin. No, 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 I don't, I don't. <laughs> he's never been a guest on our show. No, doesn't no. mean he doesn't like our show. It doesn't does mean he doesn't listen avidly to our show. For all we know, he could. Yeah. And for all we know, he's right now typing out a Peabody nomination for us. <laughs> that's entirely possible. I can't believe you brought that up. That's that's. I'm I've going meaning, deep. I'm going the deep in the catalog here. I've been meaning to bring that up for weeks. About I bet. At just asking you whether it was in the air. I could feel it. I could feel a Peabody tension <laughs> building, and I wanted to pop the Peabody bubble. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, consider I, it popped. I imagine that 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 Erwin Chemerinsky and Richard Posner, an hour after every episode, immediately get on the phone and have one of their two-hour conversations about right. the show. Right. This is how they work things out between the two of them. They Correct. Use our show as kind of grist for their mill. Pose, it's Chem. <laughs> Chem, it's Pose. Uh time to kib. What by a world. Which I mean, kibitz. What a world where that would happen, right? That'd be great. Okay, so. Rick Hasen's election law blog podcast, ELB podcast, yep. which I recommend. They're short episodes. Yeah, they're they're always interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll put up a link to this latest one. They, they talk about this issue about this is Justice Ginsburg's comments about Donald Trump, Republican nominee. A few different comments on a few different days with a few different reporters. Some uh, initial comments, then some doubling down, and then an apology. I would say a retraction, a statement of regret. A state. Well, that's right. I wouldn't say a retraction. Right. You know, true. Not a retraction. But a statement of regret. Do we actually have I don't written know that down she any... Said she apolog- I don't know that she said, I'm sorry. 
Here's my so, – so you would think if this is going to be our topic, I would have written down exactly what she said. <laughs> <laughs> the, the court issued a written – a very brief written statement and then she had a little follow-up exchange with Nina Totenberg who reported on it. But it's you, you're going to put all this in show notes. I, I will put it all in show notes. Um, and, and she started and off wording, by saying the, if Trump The wording is, of the apology yeah. doesn't matter. Well, well I'm, I'm thinking of the original comment. She said if Trump yeah. is elected, all bets are off. I think she said something like that. She mentioned his tax returns and not releasing the tax returns. What else did she say about she him? She called him a faker. Yeah. I think that was in the third one. Talked about uh, this is the sort of thing that would have made my husband, Marty, suggest he we move to New Zealand. to New Zealand, right. Suggesting fleeing the country is a, is a remedy. Right. This is the, you know, the, and by you know the way, we always talk about Second Amendment remedies. This is a right to travel remedy. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is a 14th Amendment remedy. Um, so in other words, she said extremely mild versions of things, I think, Virtually all of us have heard either from things online or TV broadcasts or friends' statements or – I mean these are the sorts of things people say in an election year. Yeah. Um, especially about the moving to Canada kind of joke. That's now a trope. It's been right. said so many times about so many candidates. So the, the surprising thing isn't the substance of the statements, if it's surprising. It's not the substance of the statements. It's the speaker's identity. It's that it's her saying them. It, and particularly her role. It's the role of the speaker more than yeah. She's a she's that, a person who's currently holding that role. Right. She's the senior most democratically appointed justice on the Supreme Court of the United States. So she makes these comments. There's a lot of criticism from many many corners about these comments. So from kind of typical liberals to conservatives, there are a lot of people saying she shouldn't have said this, and we'll get into this in a moment. Yeah. Then she issues this apology, basically saying, "I regret I shouldn't have said this." Yeah. Right. Uh, Ill-advised. Ill, yeah, that sort of thing. Don't want to talk about it anymore. He's suggesting there isn't going to be a repeat. This, she's not going to be making more of these statements. She's done. Do you want to peel this onion, Joe? <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you peel an onion or chop an onion? I guess I, you peel it and then chop it. What I, I'll tell you what I do. I cut Let's the thing, dice this. I cut the thing in half and cut off the ends and then peel. Okay. Is that what you do? How do you? So let's cut her in half. No, no, no. And then, oh, no, I mean I the topic. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to cut the topic in half. <laughs> yeah. And then we're going to chop off its ends. Is that what you do when you cut an onion? No, this I is, would... This is the... Can we do the cooking with Joe corn? Let me drop a marker here so I can put in the theme no, song No, I cut the off the end of the onion before I would cut it, and I would not cut it in half and then chop it Yeah, the but then it's off. rolling around the cutting board, right? I, I cut it in half so it's stable. You make And a then good I point. cut the ends, and then I, then I peel. Yeah. I, I, I peel, cut the ends off, and then cut it in half. I feel like we should get... You know, a local expert like Hugh Atchison, local local oh, cooking yeah. expert. I would be for delighted one of these segments. to. I would actually, unlike you, about who <laughs> you know, uh, to whom I would not listen on these issues, <laughs> like at all. Um, I would listen to Hugh. Yeah, I would listen to Meredith Turner mm. um, on the Turner team. Yeah. Do you know what today is? I do not know what today is. Today is my my special lady's birthday. <gasps> really? Now, I right. didn't know that. Now, I feel bad that I didn't know that. I, you know, I know people are delighted that we are avoiding the topic and we keep going down these detours. That's why people listen to the show. Sure, sure. Another little detour. Today is Monday, July 25th. Yes. And again, because it's, it's wacky summertime, I'm not releasing the show today. Okay. It's going to release on Friday. Cool. Which is what, July 30th? Uh, no. 29th. Right. 29th, yeah. 25 plus 4 because, you know, it's the whole zero problem. 
<laughs> that's why listen, people listen to the show right there. Let me drop a marker. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, that's that'll be one for the highlight reel. Forget it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's her birthday. Wonderful. It, what what an amazing person. Am I right? Totally. Yeah. Totally. We can agree. You really on that. lucked out on that one. Let right. me tell this you. Is, this is the this is the section of cooking with Joe, which is called oral agreement. And listening to Meredith. So anyway. Yeah, the, the phrase better half was really invented for her and her relationship to you. <laughs> There's no question of that. <laughs> this is something that all of our friends and would agree with. Yeah. So So we're gonna move on to this uh topic. The first layer of the onion is is there anybody in the universe who was surprised to learn that Ginsburg might favor the Democratic candidate? No. Right. Would anyone be surprised to learn that there are Republican appointees on the Supreme Court or the lower federal courts who also favor the Democratic candidate? This year, um, the this is a strange it's pair a very, of candidates. It's a very strange year. I'm going to get to that in a second. So the first layer of the onion is just that it's at, at the level of the Supreme Court. Maybe this touches kind of Posner's criticism about how the Supreme Court is not really a court. Because they choose their cases, they deal with these, they make basically political decisions in the guise of interpretation. of the, Like, let's not get into all that. We talked about it before. But because of the kinds of things they write, because of how they're appointed, we know exactly who these people vote for, for the most if, part. If now, this vote, year is a weird year. If, if they vote. There are some yeah. judges who don't vote on principle, but... Um, Have, has any justice said that they don't vote? <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know that any sitting justice uh, is of that view. I think prior justice, some of prior justices may have been of that view. Hmm, that they shouldn't vote. They should simply refrain from engage. That they're, they're, they're refraining from electoral politics should extend to and include the act of voting itself. It's a very small sacrifice to make because their vote is not going to matter as a statistical matter. And so the, right. the, the issue is like, what do you want to say? So, so normally the reason that we all vote is to be part of a civic action, right? Not to change the outcome of any election. Yeah, because the likelihood, I mean, when you start right. thinking of it in likelihood of changing an outcome, it's vanishingly unlikely. I feel like we did this on an earlier show. We talked about voting, but, but you know, you wear the little sticker saying I voted and yeah. you're part of a whole culture. And this is like some people's... Uh, uh, resistance to and dislike of early voting. And, and we talked about voting by mail in Oregon, which you're familiar with and which right. you had done, which yep. takes away a little bit from that. I sort of subscribe to the civic responsibility model. I, I think it would be, I, I actually uh, like the idea that uh, of requiring people to vote, which is done in some countries. Mm -hmm. um, some, some countries we would think of as democratic and free countries, mm -hmm. um, nevertheless, do require people to vote. And I think that's because it connects to this notion of civic responsibility. So in just the same way that you're required to do jury service, if you're called, voting is another way that you participate in the civic, civic action, group action, as you said. So it's a re report to your federally designated polling facility, citizen. I wouldn't say it quite that way or, <laughs> or wear the black opaque visor I imagined you to be wearing just now. Um, but yeah, I think requiring so there's that element of it. But a, 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 a sitting justice would have to decide, right? If that's yeah, the in our function, current system, if that's the function you think of voting as serving, then do I want to send that message? You know, I'm I'm a citizen too, and I vote, and right, you know, like the candidates go into the polls, right, yeah. and they pull the lever, and it's another thing. And also, by not voting, they say something about their role, right? So, what, what would you do if you were a justice? Meaning, would I vote or not? Yeah. <laughs> no, um, no. <laughs> how would you rule on, on would you overturn Citizens United <laughs> um, I, I, I probably um, I would probably vote I, I think I would vote 
Yeah, I hadn't really, you know, I hadn't thought about it until we started talking because I don't normally think about what I would do as a, as a, as because a justice. There are, and, I think, and I think if someone asked me why I felt like that was okay, I think I would say something like, because elected officials make an enormous range of decisions, virtually none of which will ever come before me as a judge, and therefore virtually none of which uh, would cause anyone to question my impartiality. Yeah. Which is an important I, it's important to, I think, to preserve both the reality of and the appearance of the ability to fairly decide cases based on yeah, the record that you're presented with. Now that we're talking about it, I, mean, I hadn't thought about this before and I would just would have assumed that I would. But now I'm thinking I might not vote if I were a justice. I think I'm, I think I might not. It's interesting, isn't it? So, yeah. all right. First layer. They all have political preferences and we know what they all are. Yeah. We, you know, in any given election, I can probably guess how they voted. If they voted at all, yeah, we could probably guess who they voted for. Yeah, but but that's not the issue. In the run-of-the-mill elections, yes. Right. This year is not the run-of-the-mill. Well, that's... I'm going to get to that. What? That's what I... <laughs> I don't know why... Did we, you just trigger Siri? Yeah, I think we did somehow trigger Siri. Do you have... Don't worry about it. <laughs> Stop, Siri. <laughs> do you have the male English Siri? I do. Hmm. Interesting choice. When I was... A, there was a, a phase I went through as a as a as a... A little kid where I thought it would be really fun to grow up to be an English butler. I did. <laughs> I just thought that would be really cool. Like there's, there, there's you're, still time. You what? There's still time. <laughs> I really don't think there is. Boy, that would be a different podcast, wouldn't it? I'd still. I think I'd still be a law prof, but you'd be the butler, and that would be. I don't know. Well, yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd be your butler, but um, oh no, that would be a Seinfeld episode. Yeah. Oh boy. Anyway, sorry that I triggered Siri. Okay, so let, let's go to the second layer of the onion then. So we, we all know they have political preferences. So what's wrong with what Ginsburg did? I mean, what do you think? Let's just, should we lay out, lay, let's lay it out first. Because I actually don't think it's wrong, but I think that it was unwise. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think it, I, I, I would, I think that's a fair summary of my own view. I don't think it's, I don't think it transgresses some principle that would make me call it wrong. I think it was unwise. I, I think it might even be exceptionally unwise. Uh, oh, sort of, I don't, uh, yeah. sort of, it, sort of very imprudent. What now? Imprudent. Now that and, and it I kind of means the same thing as unwise, but a little bit different. I mean, <laughs> before we slice that hair in half, <laughs> let me say I, I was I was uh, the the first story about her making remarks about him. Um, I was quite startled by it. I, I thought, well, surely there's someone's gotten their wire crossed, and that isn't quite what she said. Therefore, when the second and third stories happened a few days later, I was quite baffled. I, I, I really don't understand. And, and I think when I first tried to explain it to myself, I reminded myself, she's been a judge since about 1980. And I think she's gotten to a little bit bubbled. I think when, you, when there are certain kinds of feedback you don't get for a long time, you can sort of drift into some mistaken territory of thinking something sensible or reasonable or just not stopping to think at all about whether it's sensible and reasonable when, in fact, on reflection, you would realize it was not really a good idea at all. Mm -hmm. But you don't have people to tell you that. You don't have people to bounce it off of or you don't have people or the people who you do talk about with things tend to simply reflect back at you that what you're doing is good and prudent and wise. I mean, I think there's a real risk for people who serve in these positions for very long periods of time, that they get surrounded by people who, even if they're trying very hard to be candid and, and give them good counsel, wind up simply being yes people. Yeah, I, I guess. My, my problem is this. I think ordinarily, 
it is inconsistent with our our, our system of government for for judges to opine on elections and, and to to support a candidate. So the, the rules that apply for lower federal courts to judges in lower federal courts, you know, in, in, as a matter of ethics, right, that prohibit them from endorsing candidates or speaking against candidates, I think is actually a pretty good rule. I'm not sure exactly how it should be enforced and what yeah. its contour should be. But I generally think it's a good rule. Inconsistent with our, could you say more about why you're, that's an awfully big claim. It's inconsistent with our form of government? I think that there's an important role in our system played by the judiciary that is inconsistent with politicking. And so we'll get to this with what, with, with Politicking what, meaning. Uh, supporting t- candidates. Uh, supporting and, or, or, or uh, publicly disapproving yes, candidates right. for elected office. Right. And so I think if, had um, Ginsburg's comments were, uh, been made against, say, Romney, or if uh, one of the Republican judges came out specifically against Obama and, and, and for Romney, I, I think I would have criticized them on structural and philosophical grounds. Like this, that's not their role. So when Alito mouths, uh, that's not true during the president's State of the Union as he critiques, uh, I think it was Citizens United, does that... No, I don't... I it's mean, not really politicking. It's not really politicking. And, and he was reacting emotionally and in a somewhat undisciplined way, obviously. Somewhat undisciplined To a specific criticism by the president of their institution. Right. Right. And so, I, you know, it's, this is not exactly like a you lie from that idiot from South Carolina. No, he right. didn't shout in the middle of a silent <laughs> pause of the studio. That's right. true. I, it was it um, was undisciplined, but I wouldn't characterize it as, you know. You don't think it's the same sort of thing that's no. happening here? No, not, not at all. Okay. Uh, not He's trying all. to get the boundaries clear. And we'll talk about. Because uh, I found that quite startling. I found his saying that's not true. He didn't say it audibly, but he said it visibly. This is when the president talked about how this decision would allow political contributions by foreign by foreign corporations. I think. I think that was the critique. I'm not. I don't. I think that was the, the specific the critique that caused him um, to. But yeah, because they he, didn't decide that, right? And, I mean, the, and they, the cameras on him, and that yeah. he says that's not true, and you can read it's, it's sort of. Uh, you can right. see that's what he's saying. I mean, it's it's his and it was startling movements. because no one could have predicted that. Alito might not be. <laughs> no, that's. I mean, that's that's. Of course, the whole that's not what here. that's not what's and startling I get to about that. it like, at all. The startling is the the violation of the of the role of the role the, of the, the role. Right, but this is like so. So, how much of this commitment to the to the unpolitically aligned role of judges is based on preserving a fiction that is, you know, a fiction, in other words, false, but maybe not worth preserving. How much does the standard legal realist critique bite into the idea that judges should be part of a priesthood which is above it all? And like, so how does someone like me, who who definitely believes in kind of the realistic understanding of law, also embrace the idea that judges should be kind of apart from politics? And part of it, I think, is I think that uh, that Dahlia and and Rick Hassan nailed it in in their article, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But let me let me make one amendment to what I said. This is not any election, as I've said a few times already. Yes. Right. Yes. This is and, a very unusual year. Right. And in fact, I think that there is, were, were there an opportunity to be effective, I would have absolutely no problem with Ginsburg's breaking the normal rule and coming out against Trump. Okay. My problem is I don't think it was very effective. Well, we can, we can talk about this in a second, whether you agree that there's something structurally problematic about Trump's candidacy that presents a unique danger uh, to the republic. When, which I do. 
I happen to yes. think that. I, I take seriously the degree to which the statements made at the Republican National Convention last week, uh, were they to be followed through, represent uh, deep threats to the rule of law, uh, to uh, international peace. And therefore, those two things, I think, are pillars of sort of continued prosperity and human development. So, yeah, I think his... The, the fact that he could become the president of the United States is a genuine, a genuine threat to very profound values and to the future of our country and, frankly, the world. Right. Yep. In a, in a, way, that, <laughs> in a way that no, no candidate has been in my lifetime. Correct. It, you know, and, and none of the other, you know, even Ted Cruz, probably the most conservative, most Tea Partying of the Republican nomin- uh, potential nominees. Right. You know, was... I wouldn't say ordinary, an ordinary candidate in the same way as Romney or McCain or Dole or any of the ones before or, or even George W. Bush. Right. But, but, but certainly within the zone of normal politicking, which I think wouldn't, wouldn't justify a Supreme Court justice you know, openly politicking against them. I think you have to go to something like a George Wallace candidacy to, to begin to approximate the threat level right. to what, what I think are, are – Sort of core. Yeah, I don't know if we should go into. I mean, because part of it is are the particular political commitments that Trump represents. Part of it is disposition, kind of a casual attitude toward rules and structure, right? Yeah, and in that sense, even and I said approximate because in yeah. that sense, George even George Wallace, from what I know of history, does not appear to to be the kind of uh, again sort of profoundly. Because it's one thing. Yeah, it's one thing to have radical views about what the law should be. And how to interpret the Constitution. It's another thing to have, like I said, a very casual attitude toward the rules that exist. Right? Yes. You know, or even potential rules. Like rules are one thing, but like this is, we're going to do this, right? Regardless of rules. That's how. Yeah, the, the autocracy is part of the. Yeah. Uh, well, let me, let me just read what Dolly and, and, and Rick wrote uh, called The Real Reason Why Judges Should Keep Quiet About Elections. And, and here's what they say at the end. The judicial speech rules don't exist to punish judges who have myriad other opportunities to express their political preferences. They exist to preserve the impression that judges can rise above politics for a larger interest, the interest in a neutral, independent judicial branch. The rules exist not because anyone believes judges are apolitical, but as a reminder to judges that they must aspire to hold themselves out as apolitical. Judges who have an extra obligation to appear neutral might be more likely to act in a neutral way. The appearance of independence is not a trivial value in our judicial branch. It's arguably the very backbone of judicial legitimacy. And then. Go on. Think about the bipartisan outcry when when Trump sug- uh, suggested this spring that all judges of Mexican heritage would be biased against him because of his widely shared dream of building a wall. The reaction was appointed, as pointed and angry as that directed at Ginsburg last week. And it was not because Americans need to cling to their illusions about the judicial branch. It's because we want our judges to cling to those illusions as well and to do their level best to live them and embody them. The court should ensure as it did in the judicial elections case last term, uh, that state efforts to undermine appearances of judicial impropriety are unsuccessful. And Justice Ginsburg, who learned the hard way last week, what happens when justices run afoul of those obligations should continue to lead that charge. So do you get the argument here, right? It's almost an internal one. It's that, that we actually do want them to approach every case as fresh, right? And, yeah. and as not just a political battle, but as something which is a, you know, a reasoned enterprise involving principles which are not drawn from the ether, right, which are obviously formed right. from their experience and priors and everything else. Yeah, yeah, but course. we want them to approach them with a fair and open mind. Yeah. And they're more likely to do that, right, if they 
resist, you know, if, if they aren't appearing on talk shows and coming out politically all the time. Yeah, where they might yeah. therefore be inclined to view individual dis- disputes and cases as symbols of other things, uh, as elected officials often do. I mean, you, they, they talk about individual disputes to illustrate larger points. We don't want them to do that. We want them to actually treat them as individual disputes. Yeah, so this, this to as, me as well sounds, as having a right. sensitivity to the, the fact that because of the principle that like cases should be treated alike, and when you make this decision, someone's going to come here tomorrow and say, my case is like that case from yesterday, yeah. right? Even with a sensitivity to that, that, that there's a sense in which no case is actually just itself. Um, and so they have to be sensitive to, to that as well, and that's an interesting tension to maintain, I assume, not having ever been a judge. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, we want them to do that, and it's going to be easier to do that if they show self-restraint in this particular, uh, on this particular dimension. And this seems to me like a very crisp post-realist statement of the value of judicial neutrality in politics. And as good and as crisp a statement as you're going to get, you could write a whole article growing out of these two paragraphs, which would include research about the way that people kind of uh, their minds change as they live different experiences. So if you're appearing on political talk shows all the yeah. time, you become a different kind of per- – like you could expand this, right? But I think right. it's not going to get any more convincing uh, than what's already been written, right? So uh, in other words, in these two these two paragraphs that right. I just read. So I think these are a great statement of the ordinary value of judicial neutrality. But again, this is not an ordinary election. And neutrality isn't the word I would use if I had been writing those paragraphs. The reason I wouldn't use that word is is because I think it's – slides into the notion that they don't have priors and and i don't and i don't think that's i don't think it's true and i don't think they think it's true so i would say something more like you know dispassionate or some way to try to capture the idea that you're you you might have beliefs and preferences and all sorts of things but you're trying to make a decision that's even-handed and based on the information that the parties are bringing forward yeah so the court is not what you object to, and I think I agree, is is the idea that the court is like Switzerland or something like that, right? <laughs> that there's there are political poles, and the court should always be in the middle. That and the word neutrality carries a yeah. a connotation of, and I don't, of middleness, and I don't believe that, and I don't think they believe that. Whereas you might based say, on other things right, they say in the piece. Another way of a, a better way of thinking about it might be that to say that the court is should or should not be political is kind of a category mistake right because it's like your 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 views about like taxing policy and the appropriate level of taxation on levels of income above $200,000 right is a political belief and you know have a, you have a belief about what that should be yeah. and it may correlate with other political beliefs that you have right. about distribution and welfare and other things sure but one's a justice's view of that question about taxation should have nothing to do with how they approach this particular case about say takings law even though we know that they, they, they probably have priors, which are all correlated, right? It seems like a, a category mistake to say the judges should be neutral. In other words, should should embody someone who has no views about political issues, right? Or or has well, no views. No no views is kind of the right way, though. Now I'm I'm get, kind of getting wrapped up around a pole here, but that they they don't stake out the middle view. It's the word neutral I'm getting hung hung up on, you know? Yeah, and, and I. Uh, I... I got hung up on it too, and I, I think the, the important thing isn't that you have n- no views about things. It's that you don't view yourself as being a party in the case. Yeah. You view yourself, and, and you're therefore, you're, you don't approach it with your passions. Yeah, it's... You, yeah. you approach it with yeah. a remove. You're not a party to the case. You're there to decide the case. I can get on board with that, because I was thinking that what I objected to about the word dispassionate is, is that they were approaching every case logically, but with political views. Like... 
and, and really what it is is that you know ordinarily if if we have a political argument about oh i don't know uh, medicaid expansion right the fact that i have political views about other things is inevitably going to make this argument that we have about about medicaid expansion connected with that right because it's all every every political debate is kind of a little tactical battle in a larger strategic war <laughs> for <laughs> for more general questions right and so maybe one way to think about what you would hope for in an, in a quote unquote neutral judiciary or dispassionate judiciary is that they don't they they approach every case fresh as if it's disconnected from these other but but of course that's weird because there's a there is a judicial politics in which you know this case about growing uh homegrown marijuana is in fact connected to every other case about the New Deal compromise. Mm, right. Right. So there's a, and, and this is what leads people to say there's a judicial politics or, or what, what is it? Uh, Balkan calls it like high politics, which judges have, right? There, it's, it's not that each case is disconnected from every other case. No, they because to the degree not, that they're, they're connected at the level of, of, of legal and policy theory, which is se- separate and f- I think very craft based as much as is anything else, because I'm not a formalist, but it's not the same thing as, yeah, what's the, what's in the, you know, carrying on the conventions of last week and this week. It's not, you know, ticking boxes on a platform, on a political platform. It's yeah. different from that. It's different from that. But the hyper-realist critique, right, is that that commitment at the level of theory and high politics is indistinguishable from low politics. Right? Yeah, that you actually, that, yes, you I've heard that it. said. I don't think it's correct. I think it's demonstrably just, it isn't what we observe, actually. But, but Okay. Well, you know, one other thing that's been kind of, in a way, gratifying is to see a number of intellectual conservatives. I use the word intellectually. I don't really like the word. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Uh, um, People involved in these debates who normally take different sides on Obamacare and, Mm -hmm. you know, and and we argue at the level of theory about something like Obamacare, but you really suspect it comes down to political priors or it, it inevitably reflects these political priors. Who have come out against Trump? Just saying unacceptable. Yeah. At what level is there a, a responsibility to do that? So at, at what point is, I think I even tweeted, you know, tongue in cheek, obviously, that there's a real question about the judicial ethics of the seven justices who did not come out against Trump. Hmm. Now, it's tongue in cheek because I don't think it's the time. Right. You know, I, but, but there's a question. What if the Supreme Court wrote an eight nil statement of the court? saying that Trump is a threat to the rule of law. Now that starts to look like a, you know, an interbranch. It, it looks very different than normal American democratic politics and the separation of powers, which is integral to that whole scheme, right? Yes. And I would find that, um, uh, talk about startling, that would be truly um, amazing uh, and not in a good way. Uh, but I think, con- contrary-wise, I think that, um, and when I was thinking about how could Ginsburg have if she felt a sense of responsibility to make public statements that bore on what she sees going on, what we all see going on in this, that's, that is so different from the normal election year. There are, there are many things she could have done, but it, but they would need to have remained within the box of professional legal craft. So if you, if you, there are cases to make, about the rule of law, the importance of the rule of law and the kinds of things that would threaten it. And what might follow if you cast aside those practices for reasons that you thought were good reasons, but that you would come to regret having Mm -hmm. cast them aside. His name would never be mentioned. 
most people would probably realize that the speech wouldn't have been written or delivered had he not been running. That could all be true, and I don't think I still don't think it would cross the line that she crossed. And and therefore I think it would be now, would it be as effective? Well, I think it would be more effective because I think what she did was singularly ineffective. I, I think it has to do with timing too. I I'm not even averse to to a Supreme Court justice coming out on base political grounds against someone like Trump if we're in this unusual setting where you have someone who's a true threat to the republic. It's kind of like I had a conversation a long time ago with someone that I really respect about Bush against Gore and the problems, the legitimacy problems of Bush against Gore. Mm -hmm. We were talking about, you know, what's appropriate for a judge to do? You know, you get a case that you really... It involves law you really disagree, like the death penalty or something else, right? And you just, you have very, you know, very deep moral convictions that conflict with the law. It, it's my view, I won't speak for this other person, but it, it's my view that if you are bought into the system in general, that you have a responsibility within your role to perform that role consistent with that system. Yeah, I think that's generally right. It, do, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with what others in the system think. It just means that, you know, you're bound by the rule of law. To the extent that you don't do that, to the extent that you you go outside of the law or you or you do something which clearly breaks with the law, so you know just the death penalty clearly applies and you choose not to apply it, and you have no ground, you don't have the authority necessarily to reverse it for whatever reason. So you know what what Breyer wrote in dissent is perfectly okay. You know that's well, he has a he has a legal theory about why he thinks it's impermissible, but if you don't actually have that legal theory. And you're just taking using your raw power to subvert what the system requires, then it's important to recognize that you're acting in a either in one of two roles, either in sabotage or in revolution. Right? Sabotage is secret. Right? Sabotage is where you use your power in a way that won't necessarily be detected in order to subvert the system. And revolution is openly declaring that you're going to use your power in a way that subverts the system, but you're openly declaring it. Right? So you're saying, I want others to join me because we're going to overthrow the system. Right. Because of the way the human cognitive system works, I have no doubt that the justices who signed on to Bush against Gore didn't think of themselves as saboteurs or revolutionaries. Right. They were able to find this is the maybe the problem with a moldable law that's so easily adapted toward a whole bunch of different ends. Query whether that's it's even possible to do anything else. But I I think there's a, a real problem with the legitimacy of Bush against Gore, as a lot of people pointed out. But Bush against Hitler. Right. If we had Bush v. Hitler, I would have absolutely no problem using my power, whether as a saboteur, if I didn't think revolution would be effective or in a revolutionary way to say, no, you know, I'm I don't have any legal grounds, but this guy's not going to be president. It's hard to know. I suppose in one sense, we're better off because we have historical experiences on which to draw that that make us very concerned, that make some people very concerned. There's this meme going around, you know, there was there was a time when Hitler wasn't Hitler yet that you in the 30s when you sort of these things are sort of slowly coming together Mm -hmm. and pulling together. Um, And it's strange that people were saying this about President Obama in the not long after his election, that, that there's these weird inflections that keep happening where things that are were said about him now turn out to be true of the person who's running in the yeah. opposing party. Yeah, it's this right, very right. weird um, echo effect that keep ringing in my head. But putting that to the side. I mean, because people routinely in elections throw out concerns about tyranny and authority and, you know, even Nazism, right? Especially extreme elements on the parties. Right. 
always throw this stuff out. So, so there's right? a there's a real challenge in knowing. Are are you looking? I mean, you posit the case that much like Jeb Bush was asked in this election season. You know, would you? Um, or he spontaneously wanted to talk about whether you would go back in time and murder baby Hitler, right, which was, was very strange. <laughs> but the, but that's right. um, you know, there's a there's a sort of an information problem hidden in there, which mm-hmm. is how would you know? How would you know? Right. And so, should Bush v. Gore? I mean, it, what if you're asking yourself about Bush v. Gore when you know that one of the consequences will be the invasion of Iraq, which killed a lot of people? And that invasion was itself predicated on what turned out to have been mistakes. Uh, even if you don't get to the issue whether they were known to be misstatements, they turn out to have been mistakes. Yeah, if, if there if, weren't WMDs in there, okay, I think that's been established. So, so what do you what do you make of that? So like, you don't if you, know if you that were, when you're were, deciding Bush v. Gore, right? If you're a fortune teller justice and you know that, then do you change your vote in Bush against Gore? Is that kind of way? <laughs> well, I'm saying that isn't that the question raised by your Bush v. Hitler trope, right? I mean, it, the problem, of course, is that it's too easy, right? It, it's it's too easy. You know, we all get swept up in elections. You know, I, I remember 2012. I remember 2008. I, I these. I felt very passionately yeah, in those elections, too. as did, I think, almost everybody, right? right? And, and it's very easy to get swept up in the idea that your opponent is the right. devil or, or your opponent represents this extreme danger. It is. But if you – Easy to get swept up. It's but, e- it's all, but it's also easy to ignore the lessons of history. And, and there are patterns that have been established in terms of strongman authoritarian figures who depict the world as chaos, depict themselves as the only solution to that chaos. Yeah. Um, and it would be foolish to ignore those pre- precedents. So, you know, my judge got in trouble uh, a, a few years back. Do you I remember read, this? I did read that. And this is – I mean it's – people have written about it in the context of the Ginsburg comments too. Right. Um, by your judge, uh, you mean the judge for whom? Your clerk. Yeah, Judge Calabresi was uh, – made some comments at the American Constitution Society about structure, right, that um, – that Mussolini was put in power by people who had the formal power to put him there. So the formal power was there and yet it was used in this illegitimate way. And that what you needed to restore democracy is to cleanse it, right, and get rid of Mussolini, right? Even though they had the formal power to do it, uh, they used that power in an illegitimate way and we get fascism, right? And his family fled the fascists, right? He has experience with this. Yeah. And immediately, of course, there's a big brouhaha about this, that he's comparing Bush to Mussolini and Bush to Hitler and whatever else. And, and you know, I I, I don't, you know, what was in his heart of hearts about this, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, But the comparison to the appointment of, of Mussolini through legal formal powers and the Supreme Court's decision using the power that it had to decide Bush against Gore in a way that uh, that through the election to Bush. Now, putting to one side, if they hadn't done that, whether he still would have won under various right. standards. I mean, you know, you've seen all this, right? Yeah. And so he had to apologize. And then there was a formal opinion saying that he violated these codes. And but the sanction was already, you know, he apologized, and there was a, it's a it was it was fine in the right. end. But but that he shouldn't have done it, right? There was a formal recognition that he that he shouldn't have made this comparison. And I remember, and it's, uh, you know, I'm sure it's partly because I know him, and he's my judge, and I think he's fantastic. Thinking that. There's a problem here in a way. We, we all believe we can learn from history, and especially the originalists. Right? You definitely right. can learn from history um, in, in a legal sense. But also, you know, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, et cetera, et cetera. We know all these things. And yet there's this off-limit 
set, right? That the because it wasn't just that he was a judge doing it; it was the comparison to the fascists right. that struck people politically as as charged. To me, that it's a problem if you can't learn those. Like if those are off limits, then exactly when we need the lessons of history most is when we don't gather them. So are they off limits if a person can articulate those ideas uh, very clearly? They just don't happen to be federal judges. Yeah. I mean, there, you, you can, someone could make that critique at an American Constitution Society annual convention, right? Doesn't have to be him. Doesn't have to be any judge. But his fan, you know, he he has experience. Yeah, but there are a lot of people who have that experience. There are a lot of people who have experience. I actually think that, you know, he apologized for it. I'm not convinced that it was the wrong thing. Um, I think he is, was uniquely, as you're arguing about the uniqueness of it, but I think he was well poised to make a democratic structural point with experience of the failures of those systems, right? And part of it is my kind of visceral reaction against the idea that, uh, that we just take for granted that we've got the system the framers put in place and it's kind of on autopilot. Like, yeah, we can make bad decisions. We can get in stupid wars. We can do dumb things. But like democracy will always be there because we've got, you know, we've got the schoolhouse rocks model of how our democracy works. So yeah, and, it, and it's that's not true. I think it's not true. Right. It, 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 it will only be around as long as the choices that you have to make to preserve it are choices people actually make, which you're continually confronted with. Yeah, and, and I think that we're at an authoritarian moment in world culture right now, right? right. You see lots of authoritarians yep. gathering power and citing their general approval of authoritarianism amongst and each other. And this odd concatenation of events, which included the fact that he was running on a field that sort of split because there were so many other candidates. He, now you mean Trump. Correct. Go back to Trump. Yeah. So many other candidates running for the nomination of the Republican party in this presidential election, um, that with, with a relatively small, but hearty plurality over time, he was able to rack up delegates again and again. And the field stayed large enough as sort of this collective and people talked about this in great detail. And so I'm not saying anything everyone doesn't already know that's a sort of collective action problem, right? If they could all, if all the other candidates could have gotten together and said, okay, only it needs to be one of us. So that the fact that a majority of people are voting for someone other than him, it can actually get registered within the delegate accrual system. But that's hard to do. Collection act, uh, collective action problem, blah, blah, blah. Um, so we're in, this we we're in this weird situation where, you know, a lot of people did try to register, did try to make the choice. I think this guy and everything he's saying and everything he says he wants to do is deeply wrong and repugnant. A lot of people voted in a way that's consistent with that assertion, but they voted for a lot of different candidates, all of whom weren't him. That's what they have in common. Right. So now we're in this weird, <laughs> we're in this weird situation. We're in this weird situation where, you know, with all those other candidates, you know, depending on your voting system, it wouldn't have worked out this way, but it did work out this way. And now there's an up or down decision to make. This is very much like our episode last time about Brexit, right? right? Anytime you put up for referendum, Hey, do you guys want to do A or B? In a way, it normalizes A and B as yeah. both valid choices. Yep. Yeah. And a judge who's confronted with this bizarre scenario, like there are some things you can do and some things you can't do. Right. There's some things we can do and some things we can't do. And for judges, I think if if you want to give 
speeches to bar groups about the rule of law and what it means and how important it is and what you actually need to do to preserve it. I think that's great. They're yeah, uniquely just, situated yeah. to do that. Right. They can, people will listen to it because of who they are. This is the problem, though. If you knew for sure back in 2000 that it was Bush v. Hitler, if you knew that for sure, then I think a judge would be not only morally justified but morally compelled to do whatever it took by any means necessary to avoid Hitler, right? You point out the kind of the you know epistemological problem that it's never possible to know for sure that it's Bush against Hitler. Yeah, so it's sort of a silly question to pose or a silly assertion to make that if I, you know... Well, I say it like this because I think right now, from what I know and from what many know about Trump, it's not, you know, it would be stupid to say that Trump equals Hitler and, and you know... In, in, given everything that we know about uh, everything that we know about Trump and everything that we know from history about Hitler, these, that's not it doesn't make any sense to make that statement. We know Trump's attitude toward the rule of law. Right. We know tw- Trump's attitude toward certain minorities. Mm-hmm. And there's reason for great concern. Yes. For those who believe in the republic is embodying a certain pluralistic notion of what the rule of law should be. I think that level of concern warrants a judge making a statement about the rule of law and specifically criticizing Trump for his uh, attitude toward the rule of law. That is unusual. I would not say that any judge is normally uh, justified in in getting into partisan politics. However, however, if it's not effective, (laughs) if it's not an effective critique, then you shouldn't do it. Right. The only so how do you know whether it's effective? I mean, if it moves one voter, I guess that's not enough, right? Because single votes don't change elections. Yeah. Or, you know, well, so you know, if it calls into question your ability to adjudicate an election law dispute that turns out to have bearing on this point, like that, now it's now it's not only not been effective, it's been anti-effective. Well, I think you know Ginsburg's comments. The problem with Ginsburg's comments is that they aren't clearly tied to the rule of law. And it's not clear at this point that you're justified in doing anything to defeat Trump if you're a federal judge. I think there are things he could have said at this point which would justify that, right? If he were, if if he were more uh, barbaric in his comments yeah. than he well, has been, and his, but, but he's not yet there. So I I think that the comments need to be tied to the rule of law. And she made the comments somewhat casually to various publications that probably would not ultimately have an impact on people who would be persuaded. Yeah. So it was sort of bad on two counts. Um, at least. I, I think the attacks that he has made on Judge Curiel, the judge who was presiding in the uh, Trump University case in California, that judges can and should be um, publicly explaining to people that calling into question the partiality or impartiality of a, the impartiality of a judge on, on the ground of his or her ethnic heritage, ground of his or her sex, in the case of employment discrimination suits, right. you know, we, A, we've actually been at this rodeo before in the <laughs> right. 60s and sure. 70s. Um, B, it was shut down very effectively at that time. And so C, it seems like we need a refresher on that, right? <laughs> so for judges to be out there explaining all that stuff, I think that would be great. It, they can do it and they should do it. it. Not only would it not violate a rule or a principle, it would be, I think, highly valuable. And, you think? What, you think Justice Roberts? I think that would be great. Writing I think the, 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 the chief the justice court. of the United States yeah. to give a public uh, speech at the ABA meeting or similar venue 
about the rule of law, all that it means, making sure that some of the content of that speech help people understand current events better. Mm-hmm. Again, that's I, to me, that wouldn't be politicking, and it would be from a highly credible, well-informed source. God knows he can write extremely well, and so can present his views extremely effectively. I think that would be completely in bounds and really beneficial. And the fact that it was motivated by this unusual circumstance in which we find ourselves, okay. Would, that, he, would he mention Trump in this speech of yours? Uh, I mean, it, as I would envision it, no. It would be, in fact, it would be very important for him not to. Yeah, then, then I don't think it would be all that effective. It would be effective in the way that a judge can be effective without undermining the things, the other things the judge needs to do. There, it, see, the problem is, I, as you're using the word effective, I don't think there is any way for a judge to be effective without undermining the rest of their judicial role. It's a, and that is, a, that is a cost, not just to them personally, but to the system, right? A cost to the system of having to deal with authoritarian candidates who, who if elected, represent a threat to the rule of law, is that other actors may have to do things which erode their institutions. Yeah, and, and we're, and if, I mean, it is not hard to imagine, again, if you take his public statement seriously, if he is victorious and is sworn into office, it would seem that in very short order, he is going to be doing, among other things, Ordering members of the military to commit war crimes. He said he would. Yeah, we, we don't. I mean, I, I yeah, said, if yeah, you yeah, take yeah. what he says, yeah. take what he has said as a, as a blueprint for what he would actually do. And then now imagine him doing it. There are certain people who are going to be put in the position of having to decide whether to follow those orders. Right. Yes. I, and, and that's yeah. so they're going to be in legal extremists uh, in figuring out what to do. To me, the the. the it's almost like the specific things that he's advocated are less concerning than the fact that he, you know, there's this philosophy of BS, right? There's, uh, which is different than truth or falsity. It, it's an yeah, attitude. you don't care about Because you don't care. Falsity. Like the truth right. value of the statement doesn't matter. Right. And that summarizes pretty much everything he's ever said on the campaign trail. He doesn't really, I mean, he doesn't, do you know, like truth value has very little to do with it. It's, it's more that. So, so like, I don't know how the government will function, you know. But, but you're saying that because you think, therefore, my, my, the, the way I've set that up, if you take it seriously and imagine him following through, well, you shouldn't take it seriously and he isn't going to follow through. Yeah, because of other things he said, right, that he's, you know, he's even suggested he might not even, he might resign. He might not even go through with the presidency. Yeah, there's and so there's the, all kinds of other stuff, which indicates a, a very lackadaisical attitude toward actually governing uh, as opposed to just winning. And so, and so I, the, I'm an, I don't take seriously even the statement about build the wall. Like, will he actually build a wall? I mean, I, well, what's I, interesting about these, if we're if we're now really going to go down the road of unpacking the psychodrama that is no, Donald maybe we Trump, shouldn't. This is not a political podcast, obviously, but it has turned so, into so one. May, let me make one last observation, yeah. the, the, and it is and it is law related, and it connects, in fact, to our conversation uh, the other day about the royal prerogative. There are some things that the president has the unique individual discretion to do uh, or to not do. And, and building that, the wall uh, <laughs> isn't one of those things. Right. Right? It will take federal appropriations. It will take place over many years. It will involve property rights of people who live adjacent to the border with Mexico. I mean, there's all sorts of things in which it's just not up to him alone. Right. Um, <laughs> he, he could have executive energy and focus that he tries to bring to 
uh, trying to achieve that objective. But when it comes to Are giving, you suggesting he'll be restrained by laws? <laughs> um, That's my whole point. What I'm suggesting is that it's, it's, it, whether or not the restraints are effective, there's, there's actions of many people and many institutions that would have to go into bringing it about. Yes. That isn't true when what you're contemplating is him making vo- voice sounds, <laughs> giving an order to a general in the situation room right. to – you know, launch a tomahawk <laughs> at the house yeah. of, of of the family of someone who just committed a criminal act, and a thing he has said there. he would yeah, do, yeah, yeah, right? Right, right, right. So, so that, that's like, there isn't, there, it's just him. Right, there, there are sets of things he could do, which are... Um, and I was focusing on the one that was like that, that wasn't like these other institutions. Well, he things. can do them all, and, and they, they all require various levels of cooperation. Right. And there are laws that would restrain some of those things. There are some areas where, where the executive power arguably is inconsistent. With, you know, we get into the whole Youngstown thing, right, as right. to what he can do, you know, in the face of contrary law, et cetera. And, and he would take, a, I think, a very – well, I don't know. You know, I don't know if he's even really interested in any of this. Yeah. We should have him on the show to figure I, this out. <laughs> He would call in. We know that. Um, he, he would be on the show, I yeah. bet, right? Um, but he – I think – I mean, in one in one one way to try to describe why I think he uh, represents a, such a problem for for the country's continued existence, were he to win, is that a great deal of the successful functioning of all of this is about boundaries that don't get pushed, exactly questions that don't get raised, yeah, uh, lines that don't get stretched. And he's going to barrel through a ton of them. And well, we don't know which right. ones and we don't know why and we don't know whether it's because of bull or falsity or whatever. And none of the, <laughs> it's just going to be one crisis after another. And and we can't I don't know whether we can make it through right. to the other side. That of goes that. back to my critique earlier, right, that so much of what we think of as stable democratic governance of the rule of law is based on norms. Right. Where where you can't you can't point to something which clearly says, no, you have to do this or no, you can't do that. Right. It's people act according to a tradition, yes. to a set of norms that restrains them yep. from making, you know, I, I talk and it's about, a reciprocal action. Right. It's the fact that many people are reciprocally restraining right. themselves in the context of this matrix of norms. So the person who, you know, the, the, the being who is literally the fox in the hen house. Right. There's no, there's no sort of mutual reciprocal norm observance among the hens mm-hmm. that's going to make a damn bit of difference to the fox, right? Yeah. That's the problem. This is actually my critique of the Senate Republicans. The hen house isn't designed to cope with the fox. Well, it's, it's my critique of the Senate Republicans and the Garland nomination, right? That through inaction, they've, you, know, you can point to things in the Constitution, you know, through, through in, uh, um, by the consent of the and through the consent of the Senate, yeah. right? That that would appear to say they don't have to hold hearings, but if they don't, then the president doesn't have the power in the Constitution to appoint, and the Constitution appears to assume there will be a Supreme Court, right? And yet, if you take the Senate Republicans' reading of the of the Constitution, there's no responsibility ever to hold hearings or ever to confirm a nominee for any judgeship, right? And so, presumably, after the last one dies, there'll be no federal judiciary. So the Constitution assumes there will be one. Yeah. Constitution assumes that there will be a process of confirmation. And in this way, um, and I suppose in a, in a way this is an, a counter argument to, to my concerns and fears about uh, 
about candidate Trump. Um, in that sense, he's really not different. He's, uh, he's another fruition of sort of a, a general uh, distaste for norms that uh, constrain certain political groups from reaching certain favorite outcomes. Hmm. Like, yeah, he's, I mean, yeah, Mitch McConnell does weird stuff. Um, you can imagine if the circumstances are flipped, you know, Reed would do strange things or what have you. And so, yeah, yeah I'm, it's all I'm, about, I'm careful with equivalency here, but, but it's possible, right? The th- point th- is there's that, a certain general norm right. shredding that's, that's been happening. And so he's just another, he's just the latest norm shredder. It's my, not my a, new introduction for not this, a big deal. My new introduction for this paper that, um, that you've seen before starts with this example of the, of the nominations. Oh, and it, it then goes into looking at other ways we could interpret the Constitution to achieve results like this. You know, the, so the uh, uh, impeachment power, mm-hmm. there's nothing to restrain other than norms because there, I think people generally agree there's no justiciability of this power. The, the House and Senate can impeach or remove all federal officers and all members of the Supreme Court, eventually leading to replacement of the executive and judicial branch with legislative branch cronies. Yes. Right? I mean, that's a coup, right? So right. You, the Constitution contains yeah, in it that, but the power that, of engaging in a coup if you, read the, if you read the norms of constitutional behavior as allowing for that. The only sense in which it doesn't allow for that is in a sense which makes, which, which uh, requires a certain kind of normative behavior of officials right. toward that document. And in a way, you, can, you, can, you could say... Those procedures wouldn't have been the prescribed procedures if the people who wrote them down thought they would be used in the way you just described. Exactly. If they thought that, they would have come up with other procedures. It would simply be a matter of paperwork. Yeah. The House simply has to have a series of votes. The Senate simply has to have a series of votes. Right. At which presumably the Chief Justice has to preside. I guess he's the presiding officer for the right. Senate trial, right? But it's simply a matter of votes. I mean, they just have to have a series of votes. So they could, through some paperwork and a series of votes, you're right, absolutely bring about the objective you described. Right. Comple- evict everyone from the executive branch, evict everyone from the judicial branch. Of course, they would first replace the president who needs to nominate all the people who they want to put in place to replace all these people. And, and they could do that. I mean, it would take a lot of time, but it could be done. Like any, anything can be done. The question is, is there something in the document which would allow you to say, or is it, what is the thing that would allow you to say you can't do that? Yeah, and there, and the, and there isn't anything in the document. I there, mean, you would say that there, there's no high crime or misdemeanor here. Therefore, what you are doing is illegitimate. But you, who, you but, could say that, but, no but then the, the counterargument, as we know from the 90s, yeah. right? The counterargument is, well, it doesn't really define it. It's up to we, them to define what it is. We have to define it. And we define it as a lack of appropriate patriotism yeah or you know being too soft on our enemies or right whatever kind of you know made up charge that you have so, I, I i bring this up just because i think you know the rule so, of so law the, is very the, fragile yes and and, and and it depends on our attitudes toward one another yes in addition to our attitudes toward these founding documents and things right. because the documents themselves aren't constraints Right. It's people's attitudes towards those documents and towards one another that form constraints. And this is probably the best argument for why Justice Ginsburg should not have said what she said. <laughs> right? Because yeah. be- it's precisely because of how um, h- how all of this is sort of lightning in a bottle. We don't really know all that goes into why it works. And so 
if you can avoid, sometimes it's unavoidable. We all make mistakes. Right. Um, but if you, <laughs> if you can, with a little bit of reflection and, and, I mean, if and she, restraint, yeah, yeah. realize, you know, I probably don't want to inject something if, if she kept unusual doing it, yeah, if she kept doing it and then, you know, Sotomayor and Breyer started going on shows and talking about this. At what point does Alito go on Sean Hannity? And pretty soon, you know, when they're not in session, the Supreme Court is engaged in political argumentation and trashing one another and trashing the executive right. branch. Like, that's not a road you want to go down. Right. And I don't mean to pick on Samuel Alito. You and pick for any all we know, there's someone, and, there, there's someone who is making an argument. It could even be a meritorious argument. I need to think more about it. But but for all we know, someone's actually already sort of articulating that view, right? That uh, Justice Breyer writing the books that he's written, Justice Scalia writing the books uh, and articles he's written, Justice Sotomayor writing her biography and going on the road and talking about her life experience. Some is, some people might say these are also inappropriate for reasons they could articulate. about, And they're certainly uh, contrary to the norm of, you know, go back – X years, and we could identify a court, the members of which were not out there making these sorts of public statements. But you know, it's kind of like at the, it's kind of like society works at the same level as the individual. It's that process of self doubt and norm contestation, right? The the, the process of constantly asking ourselves, is this the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Which is what keeps us afloat and keeps us cooperating. Just yeah. like with an individual, right? An easy way to go off the rails is just assuming, well, I'm a good person, therefore the things I do are good, and you know, it's <laughs> and to it's, be to, and to never be reflective about it and never listen to any feedback you're getting about it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And never, you know, so it's, then you, it's then not you could like really drift away. It's not crippling self doubt. It's just recognizing, hey, I'm a person like these other people, and I should be, yeah. you know, looking at myself and this with the same critical eye. I'm looking towards other people. I'm no yeah. more important than anyone else. Right. This is sort of the learned hand insight. You know, the spirit of liberty is is the is the spirit that it is not quite right. It's not certain that it's right. Mm-hmm. It's it's not the one where the uh, it's watered by the blood of tyrants. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was someone else. That was, um, yeah, uh, yeah. I think there's re- I think there's a real wisdom there about as you say. It's not crippling self doubt, but it's openness to revision of your own views and the views of other people and therefore the need to listen to one another and that's um, what makes the ginsburg question so difficult in a way it is very difficult but 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 it isn't difficult to the level of i don't know anyone maybe with the exception of you who who might have said to her before the first interview happened yeah justice ginsburg i think that's a really good idea for you to do that i think if you're thinking about making a remark like that i think it's a really good idea I, I don't would, know anyone who would say yeah. that. Would you, you have said that? N- if I were counseling her, yeah, I would have waited. Uh, and, and, and first of all, I would have counseled her not to say anything unless it looked like Trump might win. And if it begins to look like Trump might win, knowing what I now know, and depending on what we learn from here on, I might counsel a statement defending Judge Curiel and talking about the fact that democracy cannot continue on autopilot and the rule of law is fragile. Mm-hmm. And I might even, depending on circumstances, say we have a candidate who is a threat to the rule of law and the very foundation of our republic. You know, in a very, you know, not not with any misdirection or subtlety. Right. Now, the question is, is her saying that going to be effective at anything? Will it get out the vote a little bit better? Will it? So I want to observe something. Yeah. Um, which is you just gave an excellent rich, substantive answer, the one word equivalent of which is no. 
Uh, because my original question was, would you counsel her to do what she did? And the answer is no. I've, you yeah, would counsel her to do I something just, very I, different right. I don't think from it, what she right. did. I don't think it was effective. For really good reasons. I don't, a, I don't think it was effective. And B, I'm not sure that even if she were able to make an effective critique or even if, there, even if w- what she said had been replaced with, I think, an effective rule of law-based critique, that then was the time for doing it. Right. You know? Yeah. Too soon and not the right substance. But I also disagree with what I would characterize as even the very good arguments like Hassan and, and, and Lithwick made in their piece. I also disagree that those normal time arguments are kind of like having uh, um, a timeless you know, shelf life. Like there are times when our normal attitudes toward norms, to use the word norm too much, right? Right. Uh, has to give way where it is totally justified to do something that wouldn't be okay in normal times. Right. Like, you know, uh, the impeachment power, we already talked about how it can be used irresponsibly, right. To basically carry out a coup. Right. But again, if Hitler's the president, yeah, you use that power. Right. Right. Um, and you know, the, the pardon power is probably, um, could probably be used to some fairly pernicious ends. I'm also reminded of this sort of, there's this very difficult, vexing sort of constitutional theoretical problem of secession. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we talked about last time. Which we talked about last time, but the the sort of um, the problem of secession is is actually very, very thorny and difficult Mm -hmm. to work out at the level of legal theory. But it shows that we, you know, I guess one way of summarizing these thoughts is to say that we're always on the hook, right, for our democracy and for the future yeah it's always our you can't just you can't choose whatever and say well because it complies with these rules or this instruction set it's legitimate and therefore we we've we've fulfilled our responsibilities no right you should make your choices within the framework of law of course right i mean i i believe in the rule of law but we're always on the hook for those choices yeah and there is no guarantee that if you follow the rules, you've done the right thing. It's, it's weird, right? I mean, it's like this is an anti-rule of law speech about preserving the rule of law. <laughs> and I, I, look, I understand. I the, like it's dear very, listeners, I understand totally the hypocrisy of this. But. And it's, I, it's funny because it's so – to me, it it's, reminds me so much of the, of the fuller half of the Hart Fuller debate about linguistic meaning and his um, contention that even in the simplest, what look like the simplest and most straightforward applications of a of a of a legal rule, there is purpose. Yeah, and that's what ultimately what underwrites it. Funny you say that. I mean, that's you know part of because <laughs> I think the argument you just made was that argument. That, well, yeah, that except- there's something about the um, the on the hookness and the purpose that has to be there and present and thought through. It's funny because I actually agree more with Hart, but I do agree that all cooperation has a point. Right. It has a point. And and that's what fills that cooperative set of rules with norms that make them operate. Right. So maybe that's Fullerian. Yeah, maybe that's Fullerian. But of course, it was Hart who said it was Hart who said you will not find the answer in law, you know, in, in, in a in a clear rule as to whether it's okay to prosecute this person who collaborated with the Nazis. Right. So was the Nazi system a legal system such that someone who complied with it to the detriment of someone else uh, is insulated from punishment now, even though what they did was evil? Hart says you will not find the answer in law itself. The Nazis had a legal system. Right. Your question is a new one. Right. Yeah. Whether to respect that legal system. The question whether law is moral is a separate question from whether law is law. 
And you are never absolved of moral responsibility just because you can point to something, right? Now, he didn't make that statement by saying, well, law doesn't actually tell us anything. You know, it wasn't the critical statement. Law tells no. us nothing and therefore we're always on the hook because every question is a new moral question no, that, that law provides that, no answer to. He believed that there was a core where law did provide answers and penumbra where it provided, you know, basically good leads to what the answers were. And then an area outside where it was truly indeterminate. But yeah, I, 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 I think that um, uh, we are always on the hook for whether to revolt, right? Whether to comply whether to be saboteurs, revolutionaries, or functionaries within the system of law. Mm. And that's, it's super, super difficult. It is. And it's only difficult because I think in my lifetime, the argument for not being a functionary has never been there. Because the, the argument for being in, a... In our live present circumstance, for you, us. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could say the same for myself, sure. Um, the, the argument for being, for making arguments strongly, for protesting, for doing other, that, that's been there. Sure. Right. That, that's you know, all over the place. But those are ultimately f- functionary within the norm system. I mean, articulating a contrary argument and, and protesting, you know, using your body to help make the argument. Right. Um, that's very much within the system. Right. But throwing, it's calling other people to participate in the system itself. Right. But, thro- but, you know, getting a position in the government and throwing sand in the gears, like that's never been called for in my lifetime, right? Right. And could it be that it could never be called for? I don't believe that. I think it could be called for. Sure. I just, but recognizing that, it's just, like, I, like we said earlier, it's just all too easy to fall into the, you know, because of passions to be swept up into the thought that now is the time, right? Now is the most critical chunk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, especially uh, given the frequency with you which it's s- been said uh, in yeah. prior election cycles. I, I do think this, I mean, this one feels, I can all, uh, at, I guess at the start, you can't do anything other than report your, your subjective experience and you try to build from there. My own subjective experience is that this is a different, we are in the middle of a different situation. Some of the language might have been similar in prior situations, but we're in one that is categorically different. What a fraught issue, right? What, what a fraught issue. You can kind of, it's funny because I now have, a, having had the benefit of this, I think, very uh, interesting conversation, um, I can now f- understand a little bit better how she stumbled into this. Because she's wrestling with it? Yeah, that, it's a, that in a way what she did is a manifestation of the complexities of the issues we've been talking about. Right. Um, when she said... Because I was very right. startled when, as I said, I was very startled when I heard the first story. Well, when I, when I first read the comments, the first comment that I read that was reported, and there was later stuff where I wonder, well, she probably shouldn't have said the stuff about the tax returns. I think that was in the same article that I read. But the first thing that I saw reported that she said, and I don't know what order this occurred in the conversation, was that if Trump is elected, all bets are off. And I'm thinking, yep. <laughs> yep. And, yeah, and we've, that, been, we've been saying things like that about, about, in our social circle. Well, things like uh, that have been said course. by Yumi and other people uh, for a few months now. Course, I mean, we talk about politics a lot. And, and, and so, you know, even and, just And he's been politics. making extreme statements for a while. So, But the all bets are off is a statement which is directed at the rule of law in a way, right? And that's like, I, she can, you know, I can imagine being, uh, I, I, I guess I could imagine being in her position and thinking that, like, you know, what does it matter what I decide? in these very fraught cases, if this guy's going to get elected, right? Like yeah. all bets are off. If this well, guy in comes the sense in. of all the niceties 
I mean, he's he, from the rule of law point of view. Again, if he if if he takes the attitude and carries out the actions uh, as he's been discussing them, it's the equivalent of a of an of a legal asteroid hitting the Earth, <laughs> hitting the rule of law Earth. All right. In, in other words, it's yeah. a it's a huge shock from outside the system mm-hmm. that it that the system itself may not be able to respond to using its traditional tools. Right. Yeah, I think too the. The stability of our system of government is somewhat illusory by the relatively short span of an adult life. You know, 1861, it's not that long ago, right? I mean, we haven't had, you know, hundreds of years of stability. We've had 150 years of stability. And that's even if that's if you don't count the Great Depression, World War Two, And, right. you know, I mean, these are or the civil rights era. I mean, what is stability? Yeah, I don't want to find out whether we have the institutional and social resources to effectively combat the attack on the system he may represent and perpetrate. I I actually don't want to find out. You know, this is not the conversation I thought we would have. I mean, I knew we'd talk about her comments. I I thought we'd maybe peel back the onion and instead we like peeled off the skin and then we kind of smashed it with our hands. (laughs) We did, we did, and I, I don't, I know because I do not have, not... The, I do not have the mental capital right now to go through the mail. No, 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 no. I was like gonna at say, all, we're gonna, we're gonna zip the mailbag back up, and we had some great comments from some listeners. We haven't we... getting great comments, and I, and without talking about them in detail, though. But, but thank you, and people keep writing us in. I think this uh, episode may elicit some comments. Uh, but, but uh, oral argument podcast at gmail dot com. This week is the bar exam. By the time this episode emerges it will be over so to all All across the country to all of our students and to all of the law students who listen to oral argument who have just completed the bar exam congratulations yes congratulations and we do get mail we have a lot of law student listeners there are so thank you so much for listening we hope that you're um that you have a pleasant several months waiting for results (laughs) but uh yeah congrats on finishing i know it's a huge right weight off it was for me do you remember taking it I do. I took more than one, um, and and I remember each one. <laughs> it's a separate and unique. Yeah, you, which you mean you took it in multiple jurisdictions, not that you took the same exam more than once. True. Yeah. And well, so shall we lay all our cards on the table? I mean, I, the first bar exam I took was the Virginia bar, uh, which I did not pass. Um, oh, you didn't? I Is did that, not. Was that because of a dress code violation? Uh, no, I, I, I hewed to the dress code um, uh, successfully for the Virginia Bar. I mm-hmm. Simply, I didn't adequately prepare for taking the exam. Did this come up on our episode 61? I think the one with Derek Muller where we talked about the bar exam. Yeah, did you, did you confess? Because, you know, my former, dean, my, a... my former dean also failed the bar exam in California yeah. when she was going into practice. So it's this My not... recollection is the judge for whom I clerked also did not uh, pass the uh, the bar exam on his first trial, though I might be misremembering that, so I, I won't. You better, not, you I would not you, want to hold him. To you that, might but, have just committed a slander, right? Um, but in any event, focusing on myself as I should. Uh, so I, I did not uh, pass the Virginia bar. However, my multi-state score was sufficiently high that I could roll it into, which means I really crapped out on the essays. Um, I then took the Maryland bar uh, using that multi-state score. And passed. And then I took the Illinois bar and passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I took three bar exams. I'm in two bars from those exams. And then I waved into D.C. 
Oh, so 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 basically, you so were I'm admitted three to three bars. bars. So seventy five percent. That's a passing score. Seventy five percent. What? Three out of four. Oh, three out of four. Yeah, but DC wasn't a test. It was just way doesn't matter. It's you were admitted. So, but Illinois and Maryland, I took, and I think it was Maryland where I used the multi state score. But maybe it was Illinois. Let's go I back to the beginning Maryland of the show where we try to remember things. This is our, we'll go back to our segment right. about trying and, to recall. Things. And the current dose of daily vitamin I'm taking is as follows. <laughs> um, I think know. this is enough, don't you? Yeah. All right, we're not. We're going to be off next week. But so so is there some way to to uh, so I yes I failed the Virginia bar. Oh boy, it didn't end my uh, it 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 ultimately turned out to have been a tiny little speed bump in the road of life. And so uh, I, I congratulate even the people who took it and didn't just take it feel again. Feel great about it yeah, and maybe take... didn't do as well as they wanted to. If you need to take it again, you'll take it again. It's going to be fine. Yeah, I think I mentioned on the show that we did with Derek Muller. Maybe I didn't. That when I was taking it. And people would try to reassure me because, you know, it's like it's like dump, jumping off the high dive. Like you get up there and you still have to jump off. Right. Right. And, you you know, you think you're prepared or maybe you're prepared and you still got to yeah. do it. Right. Yeah. And and at the beginning of the exam, there's this blank page. Yep. Who knows what's going to go on that page? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I daunting in advance of the exam, even though I felt a right about it people would try to reassure me at the, at the firm I was going to go work for. Don't worry. No one at this firm has ever failed the bar exam. <laughs> not reassuring yeah so anyway you, the point is and i and i appreciate joe's confessional moment this is the segment of the show called joe's confession uh, <laughs> you can you can one day host your very own podcast even if you fail the bar exam right all right so we're going to be off the next week but we will be back uh the week after i think or thereabouts <laughs> uh, seat of the pants operation yeah Talk about, you know, if, if there's a rule of law for podcasts, we are, we have kind of a casual attitude toward it, don't we? Yeah. That's a stupid way to end the show. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we do, we do what we can. We muddle through. <laughs>